right. Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. And uh, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And I hope all of you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, again, it's good to be here uh, together to worship Christ and to celebrate the gospel. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. And uh, we are going to read verses 3 through 8. And uh, though we won't make it all the way through those verses, we need all of those verses uh, to have our context. And the message today, the title, is Gospel-Centered Thankfulness. Now, I don't design sermons to fall on holiday weekends, just so you know. But it just so happened that this is where we are here following Thanksgiving. Perhaps a providence, but nevertheless, we are grateful to be here to celebrate the gospel. So gospel-centered thankfulness. Stand with me as we read God's word together. And we're going to begin in verse 3. Paul writes, we, also, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this... You have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. This is the word of the living God. You may be seated. This morning, I want to begin just by asking you a very simple question, and that's this. Why are you thankful? Perhaps you've given that thought, that some thought over the last few days. But when our kids were little, I would gather them around the dinner table and I would require them to say one thing that they were thankful for about the other person. And, and usually it would go like something like this. I'm thankful that Ellie hasn't been bossy and she's nice to me. Or, or I'm, um, or I'm thankful that Gabe has cool ninja turtles and plays with me. Or I'm thankful that Isaac is funny. That Eden has curly hair. Sometimes they mentioned our dog Honey, who was a evil Chihuahua, who uh, lived far past her time to be 17 years of age. And uh, but it, my whole point in that is, is that at that dinner table, when I'd ask them to share their reasons for thanksgiving for one another or their thankfulness for one another, it usually fell drastically short from what I actually really wanted from them as a father. But the point was simple. I just wanted them to be thankful for one another. That was the point. Well, here in this letter, we have words of thanksgiving. And as Paul begins the letter to write it after the salutation, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins his letter to Colossae, expressing thankfulness for the existence of the church. Now, it may seem strange to us that a letter would begin uh, by giving thanks for a church being in existence. Especially given the fact for all of us, we know that there are churches on nearly every turn, on nearly every corner, where is a church. But the truth is, that doesn't really mean anything, that there are churches everywhere in our particular culture, because they're really not a church if they don't preach the gospel. In fact, many people will go to church this morning to be entertained. They will gather and they will hear a moral lesson. They might hear a motivational message. But tragically, they will hear nothing about Jesus and the gospel that saves from sin. And I say that because the existence of any church that plainly teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and faithfully defines the Christian faith, should cause a great deal of thankfulness in our hearts. And I would be remiss without saying that I am thankful that this is a church 
that is committed to the gospel of Christ, desires for the gospel to be proclaimed, and wants the gospel to be the center of everything. I've said this over and over again since arriving here as your new pastor, but that is a rarity, just so you know. It's not to suggest that there aren't other churches preaching the gospel, but it is simply to suggest that we should be utterly thankful for the gospel-centeredness that is present in our congregation. And that's exactly what you see Paul doing here as he begins this letter to them. Paul is thankful for this little group of people in the city of Colossae. A church. And most likely that church didn't gather like our church does in a building. They, they probably gathered in houses. In fact, uh, there are no buildings. There are no programs. There's really no traditions, no rituals at this point in what is known as church. Instead, they just simply gathered to pray, to sing, to preach, to eat, celebrating one thing. And you know what that one thing was? It was the gospel. It was the gospel that had saved them and transform their lives from being idol worshipers to worshiping the true and living God. So Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picks up his pen to write these believers, and he just wants them to know out of the gate, I am so thankful for you. I thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you. Because you did not exist until you heard the gospel. And now you do exist. And God is to be praised for that. So Paul is thankful for them. And he's above all thankful for the gospel that has transformed them. And Paul puts the gospel at the center of his expression of thanksgiving. And guess what, church? So should we. And that is why the key truth of this little section we're going to look at today is simply this. We should be thankful to God for all that the gospel has done in our lives. And while I want you to reflect on that personally, because everyone in this in this room who is a Christian, a true Christian, all of you have a story. All of you have some, some way that God brought you to himself. But, but I want you to think more broadly than that. I want us just to be thankful to God for all that the gospel has done in everyone's life here. And what God is going to do through the gospel in people who are not even in this room as of right now. But I want us to be thankful for the gospel and what it has done. And so for us to see how the gospel is centered, central to Paul's expression of thanksgiving, what I think we really need to do in this little section is we've got to work backwards. And so we're going to work backwards. And what we're going to see as we work backward in the text is we're going to see how gospel-centered thankfulness works. We will see that they heard the gospel. Then their lives were transformed by the gospel. And then we'll see that that is all the reason for Paul's thankfulness for the work of the gospel in their midst. So let's start with the first thing we need to observe. First, they had heard the truth of the gospel. I'm going to begin in verse 5 and I'm going to work backwards. Look what the text says in verse 5. The text says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, what's Paul mean when he says of this? Okay, I told you I'm working backwards a little bit, but I think you'll see how it all fits together. When he says of this, he's referring to the hope, the hope that they have that is stored for them in heaven. And that hope has produced love and faith in their midst. But all of that is only existing because they heard the gospel. And so what we need to see here is, is that without the gospel, without the good news, there would have been no transformation of these people. There would be no church gathered. There would be no faith expressed. There would be no love for the saints. There would be no hope without the gospel. The gospel is everything. And it is the reason for the thanksgiving. So do you know what the gospel is this morning? I'm curious. Do you know what the gospel is? Do you know what the true biblical gospel is? Because Paul, for these Christians, he seems to really want the Colossian Christians to really understand what the gospel is. And so this gospel that they heard, Paul describes in three ways. First, he says the gospel is good news. And you say, well, how, where do you get that? Look, look what he says. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel 
or the good news. And, and, and folks, that is in essence Christianity. Christianity is good news. That's what it is. But let me ask, is that what most people think when they think of Christianity? Think about the people you know. Think about what, what, what most people's perception of, of the Christian faith is. I, I, I mean, I think what most people think when they think of the Christian faith, they think more of it about being moral, right? Or keeping rules. Or following certain religious practices. Uh, uh, some people even here today, you, you, you might think that the Christian faith is about going to church. Or, or trying to do good or nice things for other people. Or, or being a certain kind of person. And so that, that's your perception of what a Christian is. But I want you to know that if any of that is a definition of what a Christian, then, then, then it's not good news. <laughs> I mean, it's just not good news. But, but the gospel is good news. In fact, it is great news. The gospel is glorious news. And it is great, glorious news about Jesus. I mean, from the very initiation of the gospel story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you go to Luke's gospel, you will read that the gospel really is the announcement of good news. Do you all remember when the angel Gabriel came to Mary? What, what did he say to Mary? Did, did he say, hey, I've got a message for you that's gonna, it's gonna deliver to you your best life now. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. I, I mean, did he say, I have good news about how you can be a better and more improved person. How you can discover the true you. That's not what Gabriel said. You know what he said? He went to her in Luke chapter one and he said, greetings, O favored one, for the Lord is with you. And Mary was one shocked that an angel appeared to her. And then she was troubled, wondering, what kind of greeting is this? And do you know what the angel said to her? The angel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, I mean, look at this. Marvel at this, Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And you know what Mary's response to that? It was thrilling to hear that. I mean, it was exhilarating. It was astounding news about the child that she would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see? The good news is an announcement about Jesus. And by the time Mary gets to Elizabeth, her cousin, and Elizabeth is already six months pregnant with John the Baptist, when Mary tells Elizabeth that she is pregnant with the, the Christ, the Messiah, what happened? The baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. I mean, do you see that the, the, why Christianity is good news? And then Mary saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, the gospel is tidings of good news. Go to the shepherds that are gathered in the field the night that Jesus is born. And in Luke chapter 2, here these shepherds are. I mean, they're just doing what shepherds do. They're tending their flocks. They're protecting the sheep. They're watching over them. And what happens? Suddenly, an a, a multitude of angel, an angel appears. And the angel, uh, the angel says to the, to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you what? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day a child in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord is born. The angel then told the shepherds that there'd be a sign. And that they would find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Now, now let me just pause there for a second. Because here's what didn't happen. They didn't get their cell phones on and post on Facebook. Wouldn't believe this. Angel just appeared to me and announced that there was a baby going to be born in Bethlehem. It's not what they did. Do you know what happened next? I mean, literally, the heavens opened up. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do you see what happens with this? The gospel is good news. The heralds are shouting. 
The angels are singing. The shepherds are bowing. Why? Because the gospel is good news of a Savior being born. And that is the essence of the Christian faith. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. See, the gospel is good news. Go with me to, you don't have to turn there, but go to the resurrection accounts. When the women came to the empty tomb, to the tomb. And when they get there, do you remember what happened at the garden tomb? Luke's gospel says that when they saw the tomb, they were perplexed about what they saw. And then suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened. And they bowed their faces to the ground. And you know what the men said? The men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. Behold, he is risen. Do you see? That is the announcement of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior has died. And Christ the Savior is risen from the dead. And that's why we sing. Up from the grave he arose with mighty triumph o'er his foes. So you say, why are you, why are you using these biblical references describing or whether, where we see the use of the term gospel or good news? Because the gospel, before it is anything else, it is good news. That's why Paul says to the church at Corinth, I want to remind you brothers of the gospel, the gospel, the good news. That has saved you, which you received, and in which you stand, if you hold fast to the word that has been preached to you. And what does Paul say the good news is? He says that it is that Christ died for your sins in accordance to the scriptures. That he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And so church, I want you to understand that when the church, when these Christians in Colossae, Hear Paul say that they had heard the gospel, the word of truth. What comes to their mind is the reality that the good news is that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose on the third day. That's the good news. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in Timothy 1 that the gospel is good news of the glory of the blessed God. I mean, that's, and so let me just, let me just summarize this. The gospel is the greatest, most wonderful news to fall upon the ears of guilty sinners who cannot save themselves. And it is the provocation of Paul's reason to be thankful. I mean, it is the greatest news. And if you're here today and the gospel's not great, then you haven't heard the gospel. I, I mean, if you're here today and, and you don't see that above everything else, Christianity is Christ and the good news of his coming to save you through his death and resurrection, then, you ha- then, then you're not a Christian. Because what the gospel does is it provokes joy in us. It provokes, it, it provokes the reality. No, I cannot save myself, but in the despair of my inability to rescue myself, God sent his son to rescue me. So that's the good news. But Paul not only describes the gospel as the good news, I want you to look at the other adjective that he uses. He says it is the word of truth. So look again at verse 5. Of this hope that caused love and faith, he says you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So the gospel is the word of truth. Now here's what you need to keep in mind. Paul has never met these Christians. He's never visited this church. They heard the gospel through one of his converts, Epaphras, who had become a Christian and was commissioned to preach sometime when Paul was ministering in Ephesus. Epaphras was not an apostle. So what Paul wants to do is he wants to encourage these Colossian Christians that the message that they heard from Epaphras, that is the truth. That really is the message of the gospel. It really is the message of salvation. And that's quite important because in the church of Colossae, there are false teachers that are rising up 
and they are teaching legalism and mysticism and human philosophy, and they're trying to jade the message of the gospel. They're, they're trying to, they're, they're trying to cover the message of the gospel, change the message of the gospel, and Paul wants them to know, listen, that message you heard Epaphras preach, he heard that from me, and guess where I got it? I got it from God himself on the road to Damascus, so I want to encourage you, church, the message you are hearing, it is the gospel. It is the truth. But when he says the truth, I want you to pay close attention, the message of the truth. The gospel is a particular message. Oh friend, it is the greatest news, but it is a specific message. It contains specific content, which we to some degree have already expressed. And so for you to be a Christian, are you listening? You must hear the content. You must learn the content. You must understand the content. And then you have to believe the content. Now, I, I understand the work of the Holy Spirit, but, but, but we don't see the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we do know is, is that there are people sitting in this room and you're hearing the gospel. And you need to not only hear it, you must understand it. And if we don't understand the gospel, if we don't accept it and believe it with all of our heart, well, then we're not a Christian. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the verbs here. You, and you can even underline in your Bible. He says, of this you have heard. And then he, if you jump down to verse, uh, later in verse 6, he says, since the day you heard it and understood. And then he goes on to describe the fact that the gospels not only be heard, it has been understood and it has been received. Now, why is this necessary to emphasize? Because... I don't believe in minimalist evangelism. Too often, what we want is people to make a decision, to invite Christ into their life. And what we fail to do is to take proper time to explain the content of the gospel. That's why Paul says the truth. There's a body of beliefs that you all have heard and you have believed it. That truth that you have heard, that is salvation. Salvation is not you made a decision. Salvation is not you prayed a prayer. Salvation is specifically the truth that you have received after you heard it. So Paul's not playing on emotions here. Right? He's speaking to the mind. Because through the mind, the truth will find its way to the heart. And when the truth finally gets to the heart, guess what happens? People are transformed. By the message of the gospel. And so the text is clear here. There is a very clear expression of doctrine that it has to be embraced. And so let, let me just maybe put it to you this simple. There are still people today, as there have always been, that will come along and what they'll say is, you know, why bother about all this stuff like the virgin birth? Why talk about how Jesus is the sinless son of God? I mean, there's no need for us to really understand that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that he is deity. Why, why emphasize the substitutionary death of Christ? Why emphasize his victorious resurrection? God's nature is triune and holy. Our sin and God's judgment. Is that really necessary, preacher, for us to emphasize that? All we really need to be, get is people to say the prayer and believe on Christ. That is absolutely false. The reality is, is that anyone who says that all, that all of these doctrines are unnecessary for people to understand, on some level I would like to ask them, what exactly then are we asking people to believe? When I say, when I tell, when we tell people that in order for you to be saved, you must believe on Jesus, well what about Jesus must they believe on? They must believe who He is. They must accept why He came. They must admit that they are sinners. They must accept the truth that there is a holy God before whom they will give an account. And when they understand those things, the Spirit works in their heart and brings about the transformation of in, through faith and repentance, and they become believers. And so today, this morning, we need to understand that when he says the word of truth, that's what he means. 
You have heard the truth about Christ. I am not suggesting that you have to have a PhD or you have to have a seminary degree or you have to be able to have all your I's dotted correctly and your T's crossed. But what I am saying to you, for you to be a Christian, you must understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must. And the reality is, is that forget all the Christian jargon that's out there. I, I, again, let me just add to this. It, it, being a Christian is not a, a decision for Jesus. Inviting Jesus into your heart. Say, repeating a sinner's prayer. Being a Christian is not, I walked an aisle. I checked off some box. If you want to know what makes a Christian, look at the text. They heard the gospel. They learned the gospel. They understood the gospel. And they believed the gospel. And that gospel, by the way, is absolutely the only truth that will save. It is an exclusive truth. There is no other message, no other gospel, because there is no other means by which God saves sinners. In other words, what I want you to understand is I'm not up here just giving you my truth. I'm not just up here giving you Paul's truth. I'm giving you the truth from God. And that truth is the truth of salvation through Jesus Christ. We live in a day and age where people will say that. Well, that's just your truth. Well, I, I mean, that's your truth, but that's not mine. That works for you, but that doesn't work for me. But what the Bible confronts us with is this truth, that there is only one truth, because there is only one God. And that one God has revealed only one way by which we must be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ. So if you understand that, as you have heard that, then today, if you're not a Christian... Admit you're a sinner and believe the gospel unto salvation. But there's one other adjective that I want you to see that Paul gives you about the gospel. So what have we covered? The gospel is good news. It's good news. But it's also the truth about Jesus. But lastly, here under this gospel they heard, it is a, the gospel is a message of grace. Look at verse 6. He says that you, and you truly understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel, according to Paul here, as he's encouraging these Colossian Christians, it is finally a message of grace. It is the message of grace to hellbound, undeserving sinners who cannot save themselves. Christian, we do not deserve salvation and we certainly cannot earn it. Grace is at the heart of the gospel. And we, 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 we come to this time of year to celebrate Christmas and focus on the birth of Christ. But, but I wonder how much we see that his birth, his incarnation, his appearance is the radiant light of God's grace. We don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve the, the fact that he came to us. That's why we sing the hymns. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A morning of grace to sinners. Silent night, the third verse. Silent night, holy light, son of God, love's pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. That's the gospel. The gospel's good news. It's the truth about Jesus. But it's also the message of grace that the church has received. And that's why Paul says, I don't count my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news about the grace of God in Christ. Listen, church, the gospel is the most unexpected message of a God who is gracious. It's not what we expect. Search the religions of the world. Read the philosophies of men. Listen to what's going on in the marketplace of conversation. And you know what you'll see? There is no grace. The only thing you can, if you can face if you don't walk the line, if you don't conform to what everybody else thinks is, you'll be canceled. So the gospel is as relevant today as it has ever been. That there is a God who will extend grace to sinners through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. And that message of salvation is the only truth. The only truth 
that can truly transform our lives. So what about the truth applied here then? They heard the gospel. And that's what they heard. The good news. The truth about Jesus. The message of grace. What's your definition of Christianity? Do you think Christianity is keeping the rules? Doing all the good things? Or do you believe that Christianity is about Christ? And that's why we sing. And that's why we have joy. And that's why we celebrate every week in and week out. Because what Christ has done. You must hear, learn, and understand that gospel to be a true Christian. So Paul is thankful that they heard the gospel. But there's a second thing he's thankful for. The second thing he's thankful for is that they were transformed by the gospel. Look at, look at verse 4 and 5. Look what he says. He says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints... Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the gospel is the reason for the love and for the faith and for the hope. They were transformed. And so Paul now is assured that the Colossians are true believers. You know why? You know why he's assured? It's not because he has a checklist and he's looking at everybody's life and making sure that everybody's doing all the Christian things perfectly. No. You know what he observes about these Colossian Christians? And it's not that he's seen it, he's just heard the report about it. He's heard that their faith is steadily on Jesus. He's heard that they love one another. And that they are standing on a foundation of hope. It, those three things we might call the triad of gospel fruit. The triad of gospel truth, of gospel fruit. The truth of the gospel will produce the fruit of the gospel. And the fruit of the gospel is faith, love, and hope. So let's look at that. These three things as evidence of salvation. First, they were transformed in such that they had faith in Christ. All of their trust is in Jesus. These people just can't get enough of hearing about Christ, singing about Christ, praying about Christ, and telling one another about Christ, as well as spreading the message of the gospel. Because Jesus is the object of their faith. You would not sit in on a gathering of the Colossian Christians and wondering who on earth are they singing. I mean, their songs probably wouldn't have left you thinking, are they singing to their boyfriend or their girlfriends, or are they singing to Christ? Right? They would know just like we know when we sing. We are singing to Christ. And so, and so it, it, they are trusting their faith. That's what he says. He says, since I heard of your faith in Jesus. And what he means by this is, we have heard that all of your weight is leaning on Christ. It's like, you know, sitting in a chair. We all sit in chairs, and you, you didn't walk in this morning and walk up to the chair and look at it and analyze it and think, now I wonder if this is going to hold me. Right? You didn't. You know, you, I didn't see anybody on the floor examining the, you know, the, uh, the stability of the legs and making, making sure that the seat was, was secure. None of that. You just trusted. You, you just put your weight on it, and you knew it would hold you. That's what Paul means. You're trusting Christ. These people are trusting Christ for their entire salvation. It's like a child. Every father knows this, right? I mean, I can just close my eyes and still see Gabe, not taller than me, but actually smaller than me. And there he was, standing at the edge of the pool. And I'm in the pool, and I'm saying, just jump. Just jump. I'll catch you. Trust me. And then he leaps. And I did catch him. I really did. I was tempted not to, but I did. But you... You see what I'm saying? Jesus is the object of our faith. He can save you. We all gather here today and we, you know, we're, we're battered and beaten by all the messages that are out there and we're, we, we, we struggle with our fears and our doubts and all the things that come at us and today we're reminded that we have a faith and that faith is anchored in Jesus Christ. He is the object of our faith. So when Paul says, I've heard of your faith in Christ, it's not just that he knows that they're leaning all their weight in him, but they all, he also knows that they have found their identity in him, that, their value, that, that they value him above everything else. They're not looking to self. They're not looking to their performance. 
They're not looking to the government, to the politicians. They're not looking to the philosophers. They're not looking to the psychologists. They're not looking to the social sciences. They're not looking to religion. They're not looking to their material possession. They're not looking to success. They're looking to Christ for their identity. And they see that the true treasure and the true value is Him. That's what it means when it says their faith is in Christ. You have no doubt that everything for that church is Jesus. But I want you to see a second thing here. Not only did they have faith in Christ, they had love for all the saints. And the text is clear. Not some of the saints, not a few of the saints, not the saints they had most in, they had most in common with, but they had love for all the saints. The gospel had generated in them a love for all the other believers. This is first century Christianity. They're looking around and they're seeing people who, none of the people sitting in the, in that church were raised in church. You wouldn't have met a single person sitting in that congregation that said, well, I mean, I've been here for 15 years because my mom and dad dragged me out of bed and they make me go to church. Now, some of them, some of the kids probably were dragged to church, but that's because their pagan parents had heard the glorious message of Christ and their lives had been transformed by the power of the gospel. You know why we're here today? I don't care if you've been to church for, since you were since you were old enough to cry and you were a baby. We're here today because of Christ. And so and so the gospel had generated a love among all these believers, a love that otherwise it's bizarre. It really shouldn't exist. They had more reasons to hate each other than they had to love each other. I mean, their differences were immense. Have you ever seen The Grinch? I know I'm on a Christmas theme. I'm sorry. But have you ever seen The Grinch with Jim Carrey? Remember that scene where he comes out of his cave and he looks out over the over Whoville and he has a book and he, he, he starts listing some of the names of the Who's. And he lists the name and he says, I hate you. And then one person, he says, I hate you. And then he says, I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate, I loathe you. Remember that? I mean, in all honesty, that's humanity outside of the gospel. We're always looking for reasons we can one-up each other and hate others. But you know what the most peculiar thing about the church was there? Especially in the time that this letter was written. Is that all these people came together and they actually loved each other. I mean, they actually had their eyes on Christ, and when it came to their horizontal relationships, they loved one another. Gentiles, who were considered true sinners by Jews, were now considered fellow partakers of faith in Christ. You had old and young, you had black and white, you had all sorts of ethnicities, you had all sorts of ages, all together, worshiping Jesus and then loving one another. It is the true miracle of the gospel. Years of hatred toward one another had melted away in the glorious sunlight of God's love in Christ. The gospel had changed everything. And that's what the only, that's what the gospel does. I remember seeing a story, a testimony of a former Ku Klux Klan member in South Carolina who had plotted to uh, kill other African Americans and through the love and the grace and witness of one African-American pastor, not only did this man become a believer, he was baptized by that very pastor and embraced in brotherly love. That's our gospel. That's what Christ does. And church, the gospel doesn't just bring us together in Christ. It calls us to love one another because of him. That's why Jesus said, by all people, by all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so what, what, what Paul sees in them is a reminder to us, don't take for granted that we should love one another. Don't take for granted that we should have a love for one another that reflects the love that has been given to us in Christ. And therefore it is unacceptable when love is replaced by a critical spirit, we love one another and we love one another by preaching and telling the truth. 
and standing firm in Christ. And so they had a love for all the saints. So look at the fruit. There's faith in Christ. There's love for all the saints. And then there's the, they had hope in heaven. Look, look what he says. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So they had faith, love, and hope. Now, you see how those three things are totally redefined by the gospel? A lot of people in the world say, oh, you need is faith, love, and hope. But they have no clue what real faith, love, and hope is. Because you can't have a clue what it is unless you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. The faith and love came from their heavenly hope. Hope, get, hope is anticipation. Hope is something to look forward to. The Christian's hope is greater than death because we, Christian, we have the assurance of heaven, of life eternal, of future resurrection, of a new heaven and a new earth. And that we have the hope that we will dwell with Christ forever. It is a hope that comes with full assurance and guarantee in the gospel. That's why Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has called us to be born again to a what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Do you see this? It is a living hope. It is a hope that gives us full assurance. We will make it to heaven. We will be together in a kingdom that is yet to come. There will be a day when Christ will return and we will receive resurrected bodies and He will reign forever and ever. That is our hope. We're assured of that hope because it's guaranteed through the fact, the historical fact, that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. That is a hope that is greater than death. And these Colossian Christians, Paul heard about their faith, about their love for each other, that was crossing all sorts of boundaries that, that otherwise would have never been crossed because of what Christ had done. But then he heard of their hope, a hope greater than death. Do you have that hope? In my former church, one of our elders, a dear brother, friend, and mentor to me, he discovered that he had terminal bone cancer. I think I shared at one point when he came forward to share that with me at a church service. He's in his mid-50s. And he had a family. He had young children. I mean, it was devastating news. But we met and together just about weekly. And as he suffered... He told me, he said, I want everyone that I know in these final months of my life, I want them to know of my hope in the gospel. And so he created this huge email list and he would send it out to people, believers, unbelievers, I mean, all kinds of people. And every email he would start his note by saying, I want you to know that I thank God for this lousy cancer. Who says that? Who says, I thank God for this lousy cancer? It, it doesn't mean that he, he wasn't sad. It didn't mean that he didn't struggle. It didn't mean that there weren't tears. It didn't mean that there weren't sorrows and grief and all those things. But what was astounding walking with him was seeing that through all of the tears and all of the grief and all of the sorrow and all of the suffering, he had a steadfast hope that was anchored in Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. See, that is a fruit of true faith in Christ. That there is a abiding hope in the believer. So do you see what the gospel does in people's lives? Do, do you see here why Paul is thankful for the gospel? He's thankful for the gospel because it's, it's totally transformed this church. Give them faith and love and hope. The gospel had transformed these people. And now they trusted Jesus, loved each other, and lived in a everlasting hope. What is the fruit of the gospel in your life? Is there, is your faith, let me help you with that. Because I think sometimes we, we answer that, we're like, we start looking for, you know, like, you know, what are the, what are the 72 disciplines I practiced this week? And then we just like, it, it becomes daunting. L- let me just ask you three real basic questions. Is your faith in Christ? Is your faith in Christ? At your weakest moment, is your faith in Christ? In your strongest moment, are you realizing that without Christ, you got nothing? 
is your faith in Christ? Do you love your fellow believers in the church? And does that love overflow, not only in caring for one another, but caring for others that in your proximity of witness and influence? Do you have hope this morning? I mean, some of the greatest worship services that I have participated in and even preached in have been in the worship service of those who knew Christ and have gone on to be in heaven. And we just had one, I mean, just out of the gate we had one in the celebration of Pat Rucker's life and her faith in Christ. I mean, what a glorious hope we have. Those are three places you can start for evidence. But here's the last thing. The last thing is not only did... Paul have thankfulness because they heard the gospel, because they were transformed by the gospel. But the last thing is, we give thanks for the gospel. We give hope, we give thanks for the gospel. And so, maybe a better way to say that is, we give thanks for the work of the gospel in our lives. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Because that's how Paul begins this. See how we work backwards? Paul is thankful for these people because of the gospel's work in their life. And he, and what we see is we see gratitude to and gratitude for. Look what he says. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of my gratitude is, is toward God. He doesn't praise them for their faith. He doesn't praise them for their love. He doesn't praise them for their hope. Instead, he praises God. He praises God because faith, love, and hope are the gracious gifts of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so he directs his gratitude toward God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father, the one who ordained the plan of salvation, and the Son who brought it to to pass in human history. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the one God in three persons is to receive our gratitude for the gospel that has transformed our lives. And you see this throughout the letter. Colossians 1.14, he gives thanks to the Father who qualified us through the redemption that came through the Son. Colossians 2, he says, our hearts are just overflowing I mean, it's just like a cup that is just pouring out. Just we, Our hearts are overflowing with gratitude for what God has done. Colossians 3, we sing and encourage one another with thank, thankfulness. Aren't you encouraged when Dan and the worship team sing? Aren't you encouraged when you close your eyes and you hear everybody else singing? You know what that is? It's gratitude to God for what he's done. A God who is mighty to save. Look around you. Aren't you amazed that God has saved us? And so that's why it's not just gratitude to, it's gratitude for. He says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. In other words, what Paul says, when, when, we, when I pray for you, I thank God for what the gospel has done in your life. What God has done through the gospel in the existence of this church. The gospel just makes us a grateful people. Let's be a grateful people. Let's just overflow in the days and in the months and in the years to come. Let us overflow with gratitude for the gospel and what God has done in our hearts. Gratitude will cure any critical spirit. Gratitude always, always cures my grumbling attitude. Gratitude always is the cure, especially when it's anchored in the gospel. Sometimes, church, we just need to get around the table and remember why we're thankful. Even if it means ninja turtles and mean chihuahuas and whatever else. Sometimes it's just good to get those kids around the table and say, look at each other. Because you ought to be grateful that we're a family. And Paul here is telling this church, who's got a hundred flaws, I'm sure, I'm just grateful for you and what the gospel has done. Has the gospel made you a grateful Christian? 
Do you pray that God will save others through the gospel? Are you thankful for those around you that God has saved? And so in conclusion, we should be thankful to God for all the gospel has done in our lives. The goal here is not for you just to be thankful this morning. I want you to be thankful like Paul wants them to be thankful for the way the gospel has transformed our lives and brought us together. Where would you be this morning without the gospel? I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Isn't the gospel done a wonderful work? Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you walked in this room and you think being a Christian is just a, just doing a bunch of stuffy stuff. And you have no understanding. And now you've heard it. Being a Christian is knowing Christ in the gospel. Is the gospel the greatest thing you've ever heard as it was to this church? Has the gospel transformed your life? What are areas in your life? Maybe you need to, maybe you need to have more hope, more joy, more, uh, more love, greater faith towards Christ. Are you a grateful Christian this morning like Paul, thankful for the work of the gospel in the life and in others? I don't know what the answer for you in any of those ways, but I know the response that we should have is to turn our hearts to God and sing and to praise him and worship him in thankfulness. So let's stand as the worship team comes. And as you stand this morning and as the worship team comes, if today you realize I'm a Christian, make it known. I'll be up here in front, be happy to talk to you. Maybe you have questions more about what is this grace? What is this gospel? Maybe you're here today and you just need to use this time to kneel at the altar and say, God, thank you. Thank you. I want to have a heart of gratitude. Whatever your need might be, let us respond in worship through song and let us respond in our heart to this God with gospel-centered thanksgiving. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've done through Christ. Thank you for the precious people that are here this morning. You know the need of every heart. Now may you do that work in us so that we will truly be a gospel-centered, thankful people. In Jesus' name, amen.